Welcome to Dower in Orbit, the practical design leadership podcast. Erica Abrams founded Scattered Good, an operations, culture, and curation consultancy, but she's also the executive director of LA Design Week. And here's our conversation. Culture. I mean, it's a huge word, really. I mean, and everyone has their own view on what culture is. I mean, we all work with it. Justin, you've written books about it. Erica, you work with it every day. I do as well. But have you noticed how when you mention culture, everyone kind of wants to know what you're doing? It's not like, what's your view on culture? And I think there's this need to just learn more about how one can work with culture as a design leader. It's a great question, Jan. It's a great starting point because I, I, the first thing I think about is how much culture or our perception of it or what we get out of it or how we engage through it has evolved, uh, almost changed completely in the last two, three years at this point. And all those touch points we took for granted, those serendipitous moments in the hallway, those uh, you know, conversations over coffee or the proverbial water cooler are much more challenging to uh, capture in a, in a not planned, not Zoom meeting capacity. So uh, something I've, I've challenged, I've been challenged with and I've, I've tried to evolve with, but um, you know, I would love Erica's thoughts uh, on that, you know, working primarily with culture in a business and, and uh, you know, various side projects as well. I think people don't really understand what it is. Like they understand it as a word but they don't understand it as a as a thing that they exist in in a work environment. I think when we talk about culture, people think um, the arts. It's very macro and societal. And so I think some of the question is trying to figure out what it means and how they intersect with um, that meaning. I agree totally about you lose the serendipitous moments um, of being in the same location, going virtual. And I think in general, humans think that they communicate really well and we're really bad at it. And so Zoom kind of exacerbates, not Zoom itself, but being virtual and being remote or being hybrid or being spaced in different locations um, exaggerates our deficiencies as far as communication. And that's a key component of culture, whether you choose to tend to it or not, it exists, it exists. So I think the the challenge in working with it is, it's kind of become this buzzword. And it's, you know, like now you don't have human resources, now it's people and culture. But have you changed fundamentally your practice? Or have you just put, you know, a nice 2022 label on it? And um, I think it's still in a space of evolution and understanding you said something that really stood out to me there, and that is that people exist in culture at work. I think that is potentially a, a key to sort of unlocking it. It's not something that is given to you or that comes from the outside. It's something that we all co-create in a way, whether you like it or not. Everyone helps set the culture. Is that kind of how it is, or, or am I completely crazy? I've worked at a place where they didn't they didn't understand. They thought culture was something you chose to have. 
well, what it, no, I don't, I don't want to tend to it. Like, I don't, we don't need that. We don't need that. We just want to work. Well, you have culture, whether you, whether you decide to name it or not, it's here. And, you know, these are the markers. And so just even explaining what that means, I think helped. It exists. We're all a part of it. We have culture. We have a culture, our familial culture. When we go home um, to whatever our family structures are, we have relational culture with our friends or friend groups that differ between friend groups. We have work culture. We have macro work culture if you work at a larger organization. And then micro can go down to a team level or departmental level. So it's it's it abounds. It's all around us. And we all contribute. We all participate. Even if we choose not to participate and put headphones on and create a little like work cave for ourselves, you're still a part of a culture. You're impacting culture. You're impacting people around you. You're choosing how to engage or not engage with the process and people. One thing that's been um, really interesting for me on the the healthy side or the inverse of the healthy side, let's say, are those band-aids, the cultural band-aids um, that aren't really engagement centric from culture from the top down, but are really things that are put in place to mask the deeper issues behind a culture. So for example, you know, when we were in the, in the before times, when we were in the office, the pinball machine in the cafeteria, the ping pong table there, which is great to blow off steam, but you know, the, the, the viewpoint from the C-suite or management can be, you know, folks are overworked. They're working late hours. Let's put some ping pong tables in there. Let's put an arcade cabinet in there. Let folks blow off steam where the deeper underlying issue is why are people working, you know, till six, eight, ten at night or why are they working after a given time at all? And I think of how that same cultural band-aid mindset has bled into remote, largely remote re- uh, interactions. So for example, folks need more FaceTime. Let's put copious uh, happy hours down or let's put, you know, but not on work time. You know, we don't want people to be using their billable time. Let's do a video happy hour like from five to six and then people can kind of unwind and unbutton the top button on their shirt. And But the problem is there, that's people's personal time and they, they don't want it. They want to work asynchronously. So, you know, that, that cultural band-aid mindset, I feel like is um, bled over when, when there are deep, deeper issues to be had, but um, it's something that's almost like a laissez-faire uh, lob into the crowd, see what happens kind of a thing rather than actually engaging with the issue. Erica, have you seen anything like that in your work with Scattered Good? Yes. And, and before as well, it's window dressing at some point, like you walk in and it's beautiful and it looks fun. And for and also I worked in film and television. And so I think with anything that's content related, do lives hang in the balance? No. Are there very dramatic deadlines that need to be adhered to because there's air dates or whatever? Yes. There's millions of dollars of people with jobs, um, et cetera. There's a ripple effect. So there's pressure to get things done. So I don't know that some of those late nights, the late nights were just given. I mean, at least when I started, I think it, it. I think there are efforts to make it better now in some places. But you have people who were brought up at a time in the industry where, where like you just expect to at the tail end to be there six days a week and 12, 14 hour days. And it's not so much a lack of trying, it's just kind of a standard. And so you don't really pay attention to that. And that, that is very much a place where there's pinball machines or food is brought in. And it's nice as long as it doesn't feel like that is a standard all the time. It's, it's 
I think key to it is those nights or those those spaces need to be exceptional. People need to feel like management hears them, sees them, defends them, protects them, and they're it's as only as as needed when all other avenues of prevention aren't um, able to be utilized. But I think the other part is you can put in pinball machines, but then you can't get mad that people play pinball. You know, it's it, it's not just like you're putting like a motivational cat, you know, like a tiger running through the woods and like focus. Creatives need to not, they, they need to like not be focused. They need to walk away and do some something ridiculous. They need nonsense. They need they need to be a little goofy, a little wacky, and then they can come back and they're better creators for it. But if you try to put a corporate Beijing gray structure around it, it'll just like suffocate. So in a way, the the things that we, we call cultural band-aids or window dressing, there is an actual role for that as well. I think people need to really think about how they want people to be engaged, the purpose of the engagement, why a machine. So as a design leader, what should one do? What is What are the sort of the, the two most important things that a design leader can do for their team? As far as I'm concerned, it's really an adherence to your values, understanding what your value system is or are, and putting that in practice culturally, but aligning metrics to it. And I know that's a, a bit of a complex answer there. On the metric side, I, I found in the roles I, I've been in when I've led teams or design organizations within larger organizations, what moves the needle, what gets the budget, what helps make change is um, a little bit less, you know, it's it's the right thing to do and more, how does this provide value back to the organization and what is the bottom line? So anytime you can align metrics to X, for example, um, you know, one thing that uh, Jan f- put on my radar ages ago and I, I, I adhere to and, and value immensely is, is having folks start, uh, you know, a welcome into the organization on a Friday instead of a Monday. And, you know, fairly standard process, you know, with organizations, folks are hired into an organization on a Monday. They're, there's five week, five days stretching before them where they can, you know, study the HR manual or go into training or, you know, God forbid, get lobbed into work on the first day. But by having someone start on a Friday and putting the focus on the individual as unique individual with unique and diverse thoughts and have the day revolve around them uh, and less the company and make it bespoke and custom and understand what inspires them uh, outside of the confines of a viewport um, and wrapping the day up a bit early, mind you. I mean, all of those things, then I would, I, I would, put that in practice with the organization. I would tell my boss who was a CTO at one point, um, look how this has uh, affected uh, retention. Look at how attrition has dropped off. Look at how this idea has spread with other other managers within the organization. Look at how folks are taking to social media. Every everything I've cited there is something that you can assign a metric to that that is demonstrative of improvement or uh, value back to the organization or value back to organic marketing or value back to how folks are uh, taking to, to LinkedIn to write blog posts about this. All of that stuff is is trackable and, and is measurable mm. and helps move the needle. So if one of my values is uh, empathy or uh, comp- compassion 
or humility or inclusion. I mean, taking those values and, and less mailing it to someone on a postcard that looks beautiful and more putting it into actions than, than words. Um, I, th I think that is where, you know, the, the uh, where our value as design leaders comes into play. Values to actions to metrics back to the organization. That seems to be a, a good formula for change for what I, from what I've experienced. Erica, do you have any processes you put in place in that capacity? Everyone has a value statement, but what are how are your values exhibited internally and how are they perceived externally and understanding how culture interacts with community and the internal community of your company and your external community, whether that's uh, clients or customers or whatever combination of the two. The only thing that I would maybe say is I prefer to Thursday start because Friday people are kind of checked out. Some people are there, some people are, you know, not, or, you know, everyone's at the tail end. And I thought having people, you know, come in and, and sit through meetings where they don't have to do anything. They get to see how operationally um, meetings are run or in hand, and also tying them with a person who is in a like position. And they, they show you around and they tell you all the things that aren't in the handbook and aren't, aren't written down for you and just kind of show you about the place and you get, you get a space of comfort and then you get to go home and decompress over the weekend and show back, you know, up on Monday. I agree in totality with there has to be metrics tied to it. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that human resources or people in culture need to be a part of all the decision making processes as far as the operations of a company, but I think they should be aware and a part of it so a program can be built and so there can be a perspective um, that's related to the human experience. Um, within a company. So maybe the first thing a design leader needs to do is not go at it alone, but to make sure that, for example, people in culture or other parts of the organization are at least aware of what's being done within the, within the design team. There's an interesting international angle on this as well. Looking at, um, for example, Southeast Asia, where I work quite a lot, the idea of actually doing cultural design leadership is sometimes helped by the fact that organizations can be incredibly hierarchical. And if you're at not, if you're not at the highest level, you really can't have a say. But on the other hand, that also makes it very, very easy to know what you can impact. If you come in, you're in a design leadership role, there are sometimes clearer ways to move forward than there is in, let's say, the US or, or Western Europe, because you know what the, what the framework is. That leads into a question to you, Erica. Do we sometimes need to fence or ring fence the area that we should be working in? I think so. I think, I think the first thing that companies should do, though, is listen to the people who are there. Like a huge part of it is people need and want to feel seen and heard and understood and acknowledged. And so to come in as a consultant and say, so here I am from the outside and let me get, you know, gaze around and walk about a bit and I'll tell you what you should be doing without an understanding of the experience of people who are new to the organization 
or who have been there um, at its its start, um, I think does the company and the employees and also your consultant, um, if you're choosing that route, a disservice. But if you're going, it's like with anything in life, don't ask questions unless you're willing to hear the answers you don't want to hear. Things that may not be so great about things that you think are wonderful or that you were a proponent of or advocated for. And then you hear how it impacts a department um, in a way that you hadn't anticipated. Justin, I have a feeling that this uh, thoughts that are going on in your mind right now have to do with former, formal and informal leadership. Am I right? You're not off base at all. And, and Erica was very much um, our, uh, inside my head on the flat um, hierarchical uh, comments there. I, I will say in the echelon of crocs of flat organization uh, has to be at the at the apex. Um, we've all, you know, maybe not all of us, but we've many of us have functioned within organizations that that profess uh, a flat hierarchy, uh, flat hierarchical structure, rather, you know, formally or informally. But like Erica said, it always shakes out in some capacity that someone has more say. Someone is more alpha than someone else, um, and they are the ones who can actually make the decisions. So I think, you know, flat applies to, you know, you mentioned Jan, the fencing. I think flat uh, applies to a, a certain line in the sand, and then some folks are able to step uh, past that line uh, more than others. Yes, but I think there should be holes in the fence. Flat organizations or, thing, or organizations that believe they're flat aren't. Because humans don't behave in that way. Like you still have people, you may have titles that um, reflect that wish, but usually there's personalities that will push in different directions and and create hierarchy no matter. So I do, I do see a plus in having something that's much clearer. I think these are your areas of responsibility. This is your, your lane. And this is somebody else's lane and this, or this is this department space or so on and so forth. So I do think it's helpful to go in and start in a very acute um, sort of space and perspective and work your way out. Otherwise it gets very messy. So I have a question. You're hired to a firm. It's going to be a, let's say a month before you, you join. What would make you feel, I really like the culture at this company. I really get it, what they're about. What would that be for you? I would expect communication in that, at that point. I would understand expectation setting. I think the act of setting expectations, whether it's in a body of work that we're producing or if it's uh, setting, sending an email and letting someone know what the agenda is, that is the definition of compassion straight away. You know, giving me a sense of the, the composition of my team, or or what what the uh, the budget might look like for hiring, just so I can get the wheels turning uh, in advance, so I'm not hitting the ground cold. I think there are all these little touch points that can kind of inform feeling connected. Very good, Erica. I would be looking for tone in it. Like, does it feel like okay? So we have to do a coffee date with all new employees. You'll have a Calendly link that you will send out for a half hour coffee date. And it, you know, it feels like very impersonal and it's just part of a process. What is the tone of the email? Does it feel like it's a cut and paste email and you're just changing the salutation so it has my name in it? Um, so I think plus one to everything Justin said, 
but also what is the the frosting on the cake to that that I think can make like bring really bring it home and, and, and makes it feel authentic and genuine. You both touched on something that would be my answer, visibility. I kind of want to be trusted with learning about the things that maybe aren't that great within the organization. It's a bit like what, what you said, Justin, about kind of getting the, the wheels turning. I don't think anyone joins a business thinking like, wow, everything is just golden here. There's no issues. On the contrary, it's kind of nice to know that there are challenges and of course, they, they need to be, you know, related to what the work you'll be doing. You bring that visibility in. And that connects to what you said, Erica, about it being genuine. To be honest, I want to see some of the mess beforehand. Yeah, exactly. I would like to see somebody send an email that isn't completely finished and accidentally hit send. All the things that make us human where we're, we're not robots. I want to see how the company operates. You know, like how do they handle disappointments and challenges? Is it a culture of blame, but they call it accountability? Is it fault finding or is it solution oriented? I don't want to see all of the mess. That might be overwhelming before I start. Like a little bit, a little bit would be nice. Just so I can, because that's part of the anxiety, right? When you're starting in a new role, there's still a space of like, ah, oh, what if I don't fit mm. in? What if the way that I've been doing things is wrong here? But part of that is, is like this awareness that, yeah, but I will misstep. And how will that be? How will that be handled? How will I be engaged with? How will I be assisted and supported? Erica, thank you very much. Um.